Today's chapter is Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet two of his generation protested. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Um, We're continuing this series where we're looking at... uh, we're bringing thoughts inspired by songs. Now, if it has escaped your notice up till now that we are thinking about Man of Sorrows, then now is the time to wake up. Or maybe it's not. Maybe now is the time to, to have a snooze. But why? Why did I pick Man of Sorrows? Why indeed? Um, you know, if truth be told, if I had taken time to think about it, I would have probably ended up with a half a dozen to a dozen songs sifting through, trying to think, what, 
what will I pick here? What will I think about? What's speaking to me? But as it was, I went with the first thing that came into my head. And it surprised me, as it might surprise you. It was this song. Now, it's a song that doesn't just mean something to me. Um, it says, touched a lot of people. Um, Tim has, has mentioned that, that it's important to him, and I'm pretty sure lots of people in the church appreciate it. When I said to Liz that I had chosen Man of Sorrows, and when independently Tom Bathgate asked me if I was doing something in this series and what it was, and I said to him it was Man of Sorrows, it triggered for both of them the same memory. And it's going back 50 or so years when they were at the Breaking of Bread service in, in Musselburgh. And there was an elderly gentleman there that whenever he gave out a hymn at that service, it was always Man of Sorrows. Now, 50 years ago, I'm pretty sure, but Jimmy Lister would never have dreamed that he would be name-checked this morning. And you know, maybe Jimmy and I, with others, will be singing this in the glory together. So, let me say a little bit, of, just briefly, about the song itself. Um, it was written by a man called Philip P. Bliss, mid-19th century, so it's quite old. Um, he was considered to be one of the most important American gospel songwriters. He has around, uh, he has about 240 or more than 240 published hymns accredited to him, uh, of which Marasaurus is the one that we really know best. Um, he achieved that in a very short time. His first published song was only when he was, 20, was 26. But he tragically died at the age of 38 in a railway accident. Along with his wife, they both died in a railway accident. But what is it about a song that speaks to us more than other songs? What is it that, that just impacts us in a way that other songs don't? You know, Not just in church circles, not just in Christian songs. In general life, we all have our favorite songs. We have songs that we really like. And what is it? There's a whole lot of external things in there. But I want to suggest, generically, there are three uh, components about that. So um, any one of which, any combination of which, will make that song special to us. And the first thing is the tune. Um, perhaps it's the tune that really speaks to us. Or it might be the words. Sometimes the tune doesn't really matter as long as the words have something to say. And that's particularly important when we come uh, to Christian songs. Um, or perhaps it's the arrangement, the performance, the production. Um, now, I say that because sometimes it's just when we hear it done a particular way or by a particular person, it impacts us a little bit more. Perhaps they sing it slightly faster, slightly slower. Perhaps it's a string arrangement, whatever it is. I was struggling to think of of an example, by the way, that's George Martin, for those who don't know, who had a lot to do with the, the development of the Beatles sound. And I was thinking of, uh, of an example. The Beatles have a song called Here, There and Everywhere. Um, they, it's, very, it's quite underrated, uh, but they like it. Um, we can find reference to them really liking it. Um, it's on the Revolver album. It was never a single. They never performed it live. And I don't know if I'd heard the Beatles do it, uh, before I heard this version, 
as I was sitting and the, the radio was playing, and on came Amy Lou Harris singing here, there, and everywhere. This is in the 70s. I was a glam rock punk guy. But this just blew me away. It was, it was brilliant. I love it. Um, and I'm pretty sure that you have songs that have spoken to you in this way as well. So I want to take a little bit of time this morning just to explore those three comments, uh, components for me in relation to this particular song. And I'm going to start with the production, the arrangement, the performance, because up until recent years, my only experience of this song was singing it at Fernie Hill, um, particularly at the Breaking of Bread service. Now, for those of you who are new in the church, it was different. We didn't have a service like this. In the morning, we had a Breaking of Bread service, a communion service. And in the evening, we had a gospel service. Now, I'm not saying it was the good old days. I'm not saying it was the bad old days. That's how it was. It was an, a, a normal thing for a church of, of our type to do. Um, but we've changed. And we continue to change. And I can thank Penny for this, this photograph. And we, we are going through change just now. And it's important that churches change. As the world around us moves and changes we need to do also. And I know I've said this before here. The Word of God does not change. The message that we bring must not change. But as the world around us changes, we need to adapt. And so we need to be uh, thinking about how we use technology. And boy, has that really kind of been something these last few years. Um, We need to think about the activities or the timing of things uh, because we want to make the Word of God as accessible to as many people as we possibly can. At that breaking of bread service, way back in those days, we only sang from one book. This is before we introduced uh, Mission Praise. It was a believer's hymn book. Um, and, you know, that was what we used. I, I, about this book, there are some great words in it. There are some wonderful words in it. Um, very biblically-based songs. Um, but dare I say there are some that weren't so good uh, probably not because of the subject matter but probably because it becomes so antiquated uh, that it was difficult to kind of understand what you were actually singing um, or they were so forced in order to meet the meter and the rhyme which may be okay in those days but not, not today um, but we only sang from this now what was it about this song the, the production, because I'd only ever heard it in Fernie Hill. What I can see is it was the great singing. It wasn't just the great singing, but it was great singing. We have great singers in Fernie Hill still, um, and it's not about great quality of voice, but it's about the passion and the enthusiasm of singing praise to God. I, pr- I pray that Fernie Hill never loses that, the passion of singing praise to God. But it wasn't just that. Nor was it the, the rich harmonies. You know, we had some really natural harmony singers. Even some guys in some of the songs bringing in a bit of bass. Uh, you know, really, really good stuff. But it wasn't that. What got me in this song was the dynamic with which we sang it. Because to a person, the voices hushed as they sang lines like, Lifted up, was he to die? 
but always lifting into a wonderful crescendo in that last line of each verse. Hallelujah! What a Savior! I loved it. I loved it. I had never experienced that kind of singing before. Uh, it was great. And then there's the tune. Now, the tune is chromatic scale. It's easy for uh, Western listeners. It follows some basic music patterns, and that makes it easier to sing um, and easier to identify with. Uh, there are no huge leaps between notes, which often are, are much, a bit more challenging uh, to sing. And in the pattern, it's got a very traditional thing for a four-line song, and that's that the first line and the third line are the same, except in this case for the last note. And it's that last note in the third line that just lifts us up, ready to tackle that wonderful, exultant last line, Hallelujah! What a Savior! And then there's the words. Well, I said some of the songs are antiquated, I think, in these songs. Some of the songs are, all, are in Believers, are in Mission Praise, or they're in the supplement. We took some of them because we don't use that book anymore. Um, but this one, I don't think, is dated. It's not as easily understood um, by a modern listener, um, which, is, which is good. But there's also clear theology, like, theology in it. You know, there's no explanation really needed. Now, don't get me wrong, if somebody sat and looked at the words of this and they had no knowledge of anything about church or anything about Jesus, they would need to explain to them. But that's true of every song that we sing in church. But what I mean by that is there's nothing that's a bit kind of woolly or, or, or you know, that we need to, to think about. And let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. I'm going to get myself in trouble. John Gibson wrote, Jesus, we celebrate your victory. Now, there's a line in that that's a bit controversial, I think, because it says, and in his presence, our problems disappear. What did people think about that? Because if you take it at face value, it is clearly not right. It is not scripturally correct. You know, as we come to Christ, as we become Christians, our problems don't disappear. We can all testify to that, that this is not right. And we could think that maybe... He was thinking about a future when we were, when we were with Christ, you know, and, and all sorrow, all pain has passed away, but I don't think so. I suspect that more in his mind was the idea that when we're so focused on Jesus, that the things on the earth, that, you know, to quote another song, that the things on the earth grow strangely dim. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt on this one, I think. But another song that we've sung once or twice um, prior to the service, and I love this song, and I would love us to sing it in this church, but we need to be careful with it. Because there's a verse in there that gave me cause for concern. It says, you didn't want heaven without us. My first reaction was, well, who are we to presume what God wants and doesn't want? Who are we to know the mind of God? And yet, God has revealed something of his mind to us, something of his character to us. Um, but I thought, you know, didn't want heaven without us. But then when, when Paul's writing to Timothy in, um, in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, he said that God wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
We know that the whole plan of salvation is to bring us back to a place where we are with him. So arguably, this is fine, this line. It's a bit of poetic license. It's been spun in its head, but I'll buy that. And it was all set to accept that till I looked at the second line. And it says, well, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. Now, if we sing that, we would immediately just automatically sing that, knowing what we mean. Um, and we would just equate it to maybe something like, from heaven you came, helpless babe. Or um, you came from heaven to earth. And we know that Jesus came down to uh, initiate the kingdom of God and bring his saved into the kingdom. But people talk about bringing things down and it's no good. Um, and it depends on what side of the fence, of course. So we talk about bringing down regimes or bringing down dictators. We talk about bringing people down to size. We, we would talk about bringing down the government. Well, saying that, but just saying, you know, we talk about, And that is the connotation that we have of bringing something down. And therefore, if you look at that line with that mindset, then you're struggling to see the truth of what God teaches. And I think that Christian songwriters need to be very careful. They want to express things in a new way, in a fresh way. They, they want to make it fresh to us. They, they want to, uh, to, to bring a message and say it in a different way that it, that's fresh to our minds. And that's, that's good and it's, it's important that we have have people doing that but it mustn't be at the expense where they can cause confusion um, or that their message could be misconstrued um, so sorry that's just a wee hobby horse um, but this song doesn't uh, do that and I think this song is, is the gospel message in five short verses you know given that the last line is the same in each verse it's 16 lines and we get this and that last line is the refrain that just joyous refrain hallelujah what a savior you're very quiet you could join me in that one so that's the word so the rest of the time i want to just think about what this song actually tells us because it covers a lot of ground, I think. It tells us a little bit about who Jesus is. It tells us something of the human condition. In contrast to that, what Jesus is like. It takes us to the crucifixion and Jesus dying for us. It implies the resurrection and ascension. And um, if that's not enough in 16 lines, there's impact in there. What's the impact? of these things. So what does it say about who Jesus is? Well, first of all, it says he's a man of sorrows. Uh, in the version that uh, Denise so beautifully read to us from NIV, it says a man of suffering. I was tempted to use a different version because there are some versions that says man of sorrows, but I liked NIV for the whole chapter, so I just stuck with that. But it's, it's attempting to do the same thing, and that's to get at what's meant in the original Hebrew. And the original Hebrew would be translated, if it was directly translated, as a man of pains. But the word for pains carries with it the idea of physical and emotional pain. And so man of sorrows, man of suffering, these are 
terms that, that are probably as best we can get to in English to, to capture it. I like Man of Sorrows, to be honest. Um, obviously, NIV had used that, but I think that's maybe just because of the song. In the same verse, it tells us, though, he's the Son of God. At Jesus' baptism, you remember the voice came from heaven and said, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The disciples at the transfiguration, you know, they, they were excited because they saw this otherworldly appearance of Jesus. But their excitement was added to because here was uh, Elijah, here was Moses. This, this was a wonderful moment. But God's focus was only on one. He said, this is my son. Listen to him. There is no question from Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God. And what a paradox, isn't it? What a paradox, because on one hand we see the Son of God, and then we call him the man of sorrows. And it's that paradox that when we come to understand what Jesus has done for us and who he is, that warms our hearts as Christians, it just amazes us. Song also calls him the Lamb of God. And then in Isaiah it talks about him being led like a lamb to the slaughter. John the Baptist in seeing Jesus at one point says, Behold the Lamb of God. And we find in Revelation a, a number of references to the Lamb of God. And, it, it, and in it we get the picture of the Passover. There's a comparison made in Scripture. Because in the, in the Passover there was a sacrificed lamb. And it was all about Jesus, uh, God's deliverance of his people from the bondage of slavery to the Egyptians. And then when we see Jesus as a lamb, it's all about God's deliverance of his people from the bondage of sin. And so the comparison is, is drawn just in that phrase, lamb of God. It also, at verse 5, says he's the king glorious king. Revelations, we read that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And so as we get this, this whole kind of rounded picture of Jesus, he's the son of God, he's the king of kings, and yet he's a man of sorrows. He's the lamb of God. We, we start to understand how it was him and him alone who could be called our Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It then tells us a bit about the human condition. Ruined sinners. We are ruined. We are sinners. And, um, you know, the whole of creation has been ruined by sin. You know, you, you and I might go out and look at a beautiful scene. We can, we can look at creation and, and see the glory of God and his creation. And it's right, we should do that because it's there. But I think we see a shadow of what it was like in the beginning when God said, it is good. We are ruined by sin. The whole of creation is groaning. And it will come to an end. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we are guilty. It's our transgressions. It's our iniquities. It's our wrongdoing, our sin. 
And no matter how good we think we are trying to be or how good we think we are, we are guilty of sin. If we fall down in one point, says James, then we're guilty of all. So there's no question that we can escape from this description that we are guilty. And then it says we are vile. Ah, we don't like that. I think people might take offense at being called vile. You know, we all pretty much like to think that we rub along okay with other people. They think okay of us. But our sin is vile to God. And Micah says that God couldn't look on these people because of their evil deeds. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't love us. Of course he does. God so loved the world, he forgave his He so loved the world that he gave his only son. He so loves the world. But our sin is abhorrent to him. And we're helpless to do anything about it, says the song. We are helpless. In Romans, we read that, that, um, you know, while we were powerless, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly for us, for the ruined sinners. Then we get the contrast. So we are seen as guilty, vile, helpless, ruined sinners. But Jesus is spotless. He's described them as spotless. And Isaiah says that though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was without sin. He was a perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And when we take that picture and we see that, you know, we are helpless, there's nothing we can do about the sin in our lives, and then we understand that God has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world and that He is sinless, He could be made sin for us. It takes us to the cross. And here at the cross. And the writer talks about uh, the, what the, the gospel writers have told us about the horrific treatment of Jesus. And Isaiah prophesied about this. You know, he's bearing shame and scoffing. He was despised and rejected by men. And he was condemned. But it was in my place. It was in your place. It was in the place of sinners that he did that. And he was lifted up to die. I love this, this picture of being lifted up to die. You can just picture it. Jesus nailed to the cross. And then that cross hoisted into place as Jesus is just that little bit above everybody else. But that was the extent of the height that man could physically put him. They could only take him to that point. They could only take him to that death. Because Jesus allowed him. And God has raised him so much higher. And so this song implies the resurrection. It implies the ascension. Because it tells us that now in heaven. Exalted high. So this man of God. This son of God. This king of kings becomes a man of sorrows, a lamb of God. He goes to the cross and he dies for us, but he's raised again 
And he's now back where he belongs with the Father in heaven, exalted high. And he didn't go there until he'd completed the work that he'd come to do. And these last words on that cross, captured by the, the songwriter, it is finished. He'd done what he came to do. And there you have a gospel message in 16 lines of song. But I said there was impact. And the writer tells us that, you know, we are reclaimed. We are reclaimed for God. Uh, He tells us that there's full atonement. Our sins are forgiven. Our pardon is sealed. There's a sense of permanence in that sealing of the pardon. We are forgiven. Completely, utterly forgiven. We are ransomed because Christ paid the price that we were due to pay on the cross. What an impact for us. And then uh, we get the excitement of Jesus' return. When he comes, our glorious King. Jesus said in, in John chapter 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come. I will come and take you to be with me. So there we have it. Full atonement. Because the Son of God became the Lamb of God and died for us. Our our, our, our pardon is sealed. We are completely forgiven. And we, as we come and we think of these things, you know, and, and go through day by day what life is like, we hold on to the wonderful promise that Jesus is coming back for us. And we can have but one response to that. And it's one of praise. And that response is, Hallelujah! What a Savior! Say it with me again. Hallelujah! What a Savior! You know, um... We will sing this song again. We're going to sing it in a few minutes, actually. But we, we will sing this song again. And hopefully again. And again. Not, not every week. I don't mean we're going to just keep singing it. But in the, in the lifetime of this church, until Christ returns, I hope we will at least from time to time sing this song. But the writer talks about singing it anew. We, we can exchange those terms, but I think there's a freshness. We might sing it again and again and again. But when he comes and the ransom they brought to home, we will sing it anew. Jimmy Lister and me and the rest of us, we will sing it anew. We will sing hallelujah. What a savior. Do you know, if, if we're ever struggling, for words of gratitude. We were thinking about gratitude last week. And we're just trying to assimilate in our minds what Christ has done for us and, and think about all these little bits and pieces that are included in this song. And we're struggling to get there. You know, it's a good starting place just to say, Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So we are going to sing it again. We're going to sing it to the tune that you're all familiar with. And we'll stand to sing it. Jocelyn's going to, going to lead us in it. And, but before we do, let me just pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you first again for your word that teaches us.
But we also want to thank you for the gifts that you've given to some great hymn writers who have brought it to us in a different way. And sometimes just hearing those words to a, diff, to a tune just lifts it, just speaks to us when it's maybe more difficult just to, to, to read in your word. And Father, we just thank you for the gifts of those that bring your word. But we thank you particularly for, for this song that has meant so much to, to so many people and is so true to your word. And, you know, we just want to praise you. We, we are brought to a place of praise when we consider what you have done through Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, and for the excitement of knowing that whatever lies ahead of us in this world, there is a day when he is coming back. And we just want to rejoice in that and say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And we see it in his own precious name. Amen.